HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and Bobby Comforto, my mom, who is in Long Island being cozy. Um, hello, everyone, in this post-holiday episode. Um, I think it goes without saying that the holidays can be very difficult for everyone, but... Um, and wonderful and lovely, but uh, especially if you're grieving or have had grief or trauma in your past or loss, it's a really complicated time for a lot of us. So you are not alone in that. You know, I am personally feeling a lot of mixed feelings, um, thinking about my dad and thinking about just other folks who have gone in and out of my life. You know, it's just a highly sensitive time. Um, so if you are also having a highly sensitive time again, you're not alone and we are really thinking about you and, uh, we hope that you're taking care of yourselves the best you can, which sometimes is just tucking in and like kind of riding it out and zoning out. And sometimes it's getting creative or getting out there and really whatever works for you, but be kind to yourselves because, you know, we're, we're so, used to, I don't know, just kind of trauma and wildness and all this stuff that's been going on this past year and in years before that. Um, and sometimes we just need to take a minute and look at ourselves and say, it's okay if you don't feel great today, you know? And on the other hand, it's okay if you do feel great and maybe you think you're not supposed to. All feelings are normal. Um, and if your feelings start to become overwhelming, of course, like, you know, reach out to friends, support system, and our mental health professional, um, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, if your feelings are getting really overwhelming and dark. Um, but again, just I think remembering that there's so many people who can kind of empathize with what you're going through um, and to just just be kind and gentle to yourselves. I know that I'm going to try to be and it feels really hard for me too. And uh, I'm trying to be gentle to myself and it doesn't, you know, every day is not the best day. Um, but things change. I think that's the constant in life. Everything really does change. Feelings change. 
um, situations change, days change, and weeks and months and years change. So sending a lot of love your way. Um, and also hopefully that like, if you're able to enjoy moments of this holiday or the whole thing that you're cooking and eating things that make you happy and make you feel good and bring a sense of peace and nostalgia. Um, I made meatballs and lasagna with my friends up in Kingston. Um, and it was really sweet and reminded me of my dad and that felt good. Um, okay. Well, without any further ado, we are welcoming three amazing guests on today's show. We have the Driscoll family, um, Ellen Driscoll, Dan Driscoll, who are brother and sister, and Claire Driscoll. Um, Ellen and Dan both lost their partners in uh, recent years, and Claire lost her mom, uh, who was Dan's wife, and they were so generous in sharing their experiences with grief of their partners and their parent. And uh, it was a really beautiful, very touching conversation. And Claire at one point during the episode says something that her, uh, her mother had told her before she passed. Um, I'm going to paraphrase, but she said, you know, I guess in wondering how you access people who have passed and how, how the relationship continues. And she said, I'll find you when you're doing what you love. And again, I'm paraphrasing, and in the episode you'll hear Claire's beautiful way of putting it, what her mom said. Um, but that's been something that's really stuck with me because I don't know about you guys, but I am constantly trying to find my dad. I'm trying to find where he is. I'm trying to continue the relationship in some way. Um, and sometimes it feels so far away. Like I can't see it. I can't see him anymore. And that is so hard. And so hearing that for me, I'm getting emotional now. And I got emotional when she said it on the show, because it was just so beautiful and it was really touching and it gave me hope. Um, and I'm going to share an interesting story with you guys. So this week when I was up visiting my two best friends, Alexis and Kyle and their kids in, in Kingston, um, on Christmas Eve morning, they went out to bring the kiddos to the supermarket and buy groceries for their local community fridge. And they brought the stuff there. And Alexis and Kyle had known my dad very well. Um, and my dad, John, was such a benevolent and generous and caring guy always, and especially around the holidays, he would always make um, like cookies for everyone at cancer care. And he would take care of everyone. He would bring toys and coats and everything you can imagine to, um, houseless people and food insecure people. And he was just really just such a caring and giving guy. So that's a little backstory. And my dad kind of looked like uh, a red haired Santa. He had that kind of body type <laughs> and demeanor. Um, anyway, so they're at the food, at the community fridge. Um, and I am not with them at this point. I'm home just cooking at their house and getting ready. And, they come home and the kiddos are like, Hey, we saw your dad at the community fridge. And of course I was like, okay. And so Alexis and Kyle walk in the house and they say they were at the fridge bringing the food and they see a gentleman walk up as they're leaving who looked just exactly like my dad. Um, and they didn't know if maybe he was there to get something from the fridge or donate, but he stopped them and he said, Hey, what's going on here? And they said, well, this is community fridge and you know, we're bringing some food. And 
he said his name was Mark and that he, something about how he like tries to set goals for himself all year and sometimes they don't work out. And so anyway, because of that, he wanted to give my friends a hundred dollars. Um, and they were confused and he's like, I just want you really want you guys to have this hundred dollar bill. And, you know, so they, after telling them, you know, he could give it to the, the pantry or the fridge or whatever, they, they of course took the money and then bought more groceries for the fridge. But the interesting part of it, and then he was also driving my same car as my dad drove. Um, and that morning I had had this conversation with my dad out loud and I, you know, I'm going just through some stuff and, um, I was asking him, you know, I just need to know you're here and can you help me with these couple of things? And I was really just having a moment. And so that just seemed very interesting. And then also to like tie this part in to kind of make it all make a, make sense a little bit. Um, over the summer I had written a short film and I was telling my mom and my stepdad about it as we were walking down the beach at Robert Moses. And the film I wrote centers around my father and I, you know, he passes and then his ghost and I go to the beach at Robert Moses. And as I'm telling my parents about this on the beach, they say, well, how are you going to fund the film? And right when they asked that, my stepdad steps on a little crumpled up or a very well folded up hundred dollar bill. And the hundred dollar bill that they gave my friends, uh, that Mark um, gave my friends was folded up the same way. And so make of it what you will. But I just thought it was so interesting because there I was doing what I loved, cooking and being with my friends and during the holiday and that happened. And so, you know, who knows what it all means, um, how, what you decide to make of that, what I decided to make of it, but it really in tandem with hearing, um, what Claire describes in the episode about her mother said, just really, it made me burst into tears and it made me happy. And, uh, anyway, so just a little interesting Christmas miracle story to share with you guys. Um, so I hope that you all get to do what you love this season a bit and that you have a really hopeful and good new year. Um, hopeful being the key word there. So this is a long intro. I hope you're still with us <laughs> and that you stick around for this really, really wonderful episode with the Driscoll's. Again, Ellen, Dan, Claire, thank you so much for your time um, and your wisdom and your words and your bravery and sharing your stories. So take care of yourselves and each other, guys. Okay, bye. We are here today with the Driscoll family. We have brother and sister, uh, Ellen and Dan Driscoll, and Dan's lovely daughter, Claire Driscoll, joining us from across the pond. Um, so guys, what have you been, what have you been cooking up lately? Ellen, let's start with you. What have you been cooking lately? What have we been cooking? Um, well, I made some chili this weekend, this past weekend. We have a Christmas chili that we make here. Um, to celebrate our leg lamp lighting party, which opens the season. It was very different this year with no people. 
<laughs> Have you seen this, the Christmas story movie? There's a lake lamp in it. So my wife, Jane, was all about when we moved into this house, we have a picture window in the front and she thought that'd be perfect for the leg lamp. And I was like, no, 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 no. Um, so there was one year, I mean, this went on for years. Friends have been giving us like leg lamp string lights, um, night lights with leg lamps, ornaments all over the place, which are all very sweet, but it's not the lamp as Jane would like to say. So uh, one day I'm coming home from work. She called me, she was berserk. Like I thought she won a million dollars and she wanted to know if I was going to come through Greenlawn, if I'd go through Smith Street, because there's something that I have to see. I thought it would be some spectacular Christmas tree. It was the silly lamp in the window. And uh, so I just, at that moment, I'm like, I'm a jerk. Like, all she wants <laughs> is the lamp, you know? Like, what difference does it make? So I kind of kept my thing. When I got home, I said, no, 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 that's ridiculous. It's silly, you know? And then I called and ordered it and had it delivered to her brother's house here in Huntington. And when we went to Jersey to be with the Driscolls for Christmas Eve, like we always do, when we came home that night, the lamp was aglow. And uh, it was pretty cool. And she wanted to keep it up forever then. And I'm like, no, no, no. How about we do a leg lamp lighting party? We have to put it away. And then the first weekend in December every year, we can bring people over and light it. And I said, I changed the words to deck the halls. The chili ends up going in um, Chinese food containers because in the movie, the dog ate the turkey. I hope I didn't give anything away, but the dog <laughs> ate the turkey. <laughs> they had to go over to uh, the Chinese food place. And um, so, yeah, so people come, it's indoor, outdoor, and we sing the song and the leg lights up and we just kind of open the season that way. So what a cool tradition. So, what a cool tradition. That's really awesome. Yeah, so I made the chili. So I made the chili. Cool. And then and passed Claire it around. Would... I was like DoorDash chili girl because oh, really? there was nobody just... here to eat it. And there's a lot of chili. <laughs> I, I'm not good with math. I can't figure out how to make Jane's chili just for a few people. You have to do 16 quarts of chili. I don't know how to do it. Otherwise, I've tried a couple times. So I just passed it around to folks. Totally. Well, I think I think that's the thing with making food that's traditional from like passed on from people who you love and your family. If it's for a big crowd, you have to make it for a big crowd. I have the same thing in my family. It was very traditional around my dad's side to make pizza rustica, uh, which is like this like layered dough, cheese, ricotta, prosciutto thing you always make around the holidays and Easter. And I tried to make it once very tiny and it just wasn't the same. And you just realized you just have to make it the way it's supposed to be made. And then you just give, give it away if you need to. Yeah. Yeah. Claire, what's going on with you? What's it like? What's, what's the beat in Ireland? (laughs) Yeah, things are good. Um, most of what we've been, um, uh, most of what our meals have looked like here so far have been, um, communal meals with our parish priest. (laughs) He is a big cook and so he will do like sort of how we do at home where it's a large um like family style meal and we all sit down one day a week um so that's been really fun we usually do it on fridays but um today uh he was out at a funeral and so we um are uh we switched it to, to Sunday this week, I think. But but yeah, so otherwise we're, um, I'm, I'm on a postgraduate service program here in Ireland. So I'm living in community with three other members who are all recent graduates. So at home, our cooking is very much uh, like recently graduated, not really <laughs> sure what's going on kind of stuff. Totally, <laughs> um, totally. But, 
Um, but I did recently get the recipe for our family's eggnog. So I'm hoping to try that this week. That's like a big oh. deal. Oh. <laughs> That's my dad's grandma. Give it a little thumbs up. And, and, Are you old did... enough for grandma's eggnog? I don't know. <laughs> Pass it along to us. We want that eggnog recipe too. And and Dan, joining us from South End, what's going on? What have you? What's been going on in your kitchen recently? Well, I'm busy sending my daughter out alcoholic uh, eggnog <laughs> recipes. <laughs> um, but uh, so actually, the uh, what 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 I was thinking about when um, invited to this was that one of the things that we do is. Uh, Sunday dinner, um, I use my mother-in-law's uh, sauce recipe, and uh, it's not, the way my wife was was raised was Sundays with spaghetti, and I think Wednesdays with spaghetti also. And Love um, it. so, what we've been doing, and actually, it's um, it's something we've we've missed a lot in the in the pandemic, is we've been doing spaghetti and then inviting people, um, and we haven't been able to invite people. Nobody's been inside this house since March, which is very strange, you know? Um, so our food right now is mostly my eldest, Patty, is very focused on um, uh, Christmas. And he is looking for, again, uh, family uh, recipes for cookies and that kind of thing. So we've been doing a little bit of that. Um, and... Uh, but I, I miss the um, the spaghetti. I mean, we I still do the spaghetti, yeah. and I still do it on Sundays. But it's just yeah. it's just it's been different, you know. It's really different, yeah. And you guys grew up, so I know that you have a big family yourself, Dan. You have a lot of children. Um, you have five children total. Yes. Right. Um, but you and Ellen grew up in a big family, right? Yeah. How many were you all? Five also. Five. You there. were also five. That's what yeah. I thought. So what, like, as someone, like, Bobby and I were talking about this before the show, is that Bobby, I'm an only child, or at least I was an only child for most of my life. I actually found out I had a long-lost brother at age 33, but that's a story for another time. But, like, I grew up as an only child. Bobby grew up, you know, even though you had, like, some older brothers and sisters, very much as kind of an only child, too, right, Mom? Right, because my half-sister is 10 years older than I, and my half-brother, who didn't live with us, was 15 years older. So I mostly grew up as an only child. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, some of our curiosities were peaked at like, you know, the kind of early, early in your guy's life. You know, I know that you went through a really a big grief, the loss of your dad and some other things that were attached to that. I'm just wondering if you could tell a maybe Ellen, you could start and tell us a little bit about that. But also just kind of I'm very I think we're both very interested in how the dynamic of a big family helps you kind of get through some of these things in life and or or can present an interesting challenge so ellen could you just tell us a bit about kind of some of the early trauma in your life sure um well the five of us were born six years apart from i mean within six years so um so we're kind of one right after the other so um so i only put that part out because we were kind of a litter you know we're a tribe so we had each other from the beginning you know the girls were in one room with the bunk beds the boys were the other room with the bunk beds um so that was really cool. So, so the, the, the fun we had as kids and doing things together, and we had a lot of, um, you know, one pot meals, crock pot, hamburger helper. Do you remember hamburger helper? Um, <laughs> are like, I love that stuff. Are, um, <laughs> are like, are 
dinners out would be hamburger, you know, hamburger joints or the pizza places, um, that kind of thing. But mostly we were eating at home and, you know, not too picky. Um, you know, I've, I've grown to meet people who had favorite meals and stuff like that. And they'd ask me mine and I'd be like, well, I don't know, whatever they were serving, it was that kind of thing. But I think um, to kind of keep, and Danny reminds me a lot of our dads when I'm over there for his Sunday suppers and such, but um, but to kind of keep the the peace, we would sit down together, we would eat together, we would talk all at the same time. Our youngest <laughs> sister, Bay used to have to stand up to be heard. We'd look at her like, what are you doing, you know? Um, but then dinner was over and maybe everybody wasn't finished eating. So dad would do magic tricks and he would go through this, um, name the states and who were the presidents and all that kind of stuff, just to keep us hanging around until we could finish eating, or at least we could give it to the dog, you know, get the food off the table. But, um, but he, he was alcoholic. So as his alcoholism progressed, those kinds of hanging around and eating together times kind of ended. I mean, I remember one night we were sitting at the table and he walked in and you can kind of tell like, oh, he's been drinking. So that immediately changes the whole tone of the thing. And we scattered and got away as soon as we could. So then we were kind of like eating on our own and doing our own thing. But the food, the impact of the food at that point was we went on food stamps. I mean, there was a lot of things that happen when somebody's alcoholic, they lose their job and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I think one of the things that, so we're just making it our own way, but I have a little shame from that because we would go to the grocery store with my mom and help her pack up the carts and all that. And then when it came to like checkout time, I, I would ditch, I mean, all of our friends, Danny worked in a grocery store. I worked in a grocery store, like everybody was checking out and so we wanted somehow we're such a small town somehow I figured if I wasn't standing next to my mom maybe they wouldn't know that was my mom as they were ripping the food stamp things off of the it wasn't cool like they have now you can just swipe your card looks like a credit card it was this goofy book that you couldn't separate and put in your purse you had to rip them one at a time but um but the other part about that is um when when you're on food stamps you get free lunch but we were in a a school district that um, I don't think anybody else was getting free lunch, you know, it was one of those kind of towns. But but in order to get free lunch so that you wouldn't have to like be outed to your friends in the cafeteria line, you could go to the cafeteria ladies earlier in the day and they would give you the money, you know. So to get to the cafeteria ladies, you walk down the hall to kind of go into where the kitchen was, where they were all cooking and they were great, cooking and getting ready for lunch and singing and doing their thing. Um, but that's the hall down to the girls' locker room. Danny, I don't know if you remember that hall down to the locker room on the next to the gym. Um, so I would go down there. My brother, older brother and I were in the high school and sisters in junior high and Danny and the younger one are in elementary school. They'd open up the drawer and there'd be my envelope with 75 cents in it and Mike's envelope with 75 cents in it. And every time I went to get lunch, Mike's envelope was in there. There's no way Mike would have any reason to go down that hallway to go to the kitchen. He'd So anyway, so I always wondered, we never talked about it, like, how do you eat? Like, I had to eat, right. you know? Um, sure, sure. So, um, so all that happened, and then Dad passed when we were young, and this is the tragedy of this whole thing. Claire's brothers and sisters, we're all pretty much the same ages, right, Dan, that, that they were. And, um, and it was kind of one of those, the last 10 years were, you know, progressive alcoholism, not great, but we still had each other. 
you know. And I remember when dad passed, Danny was getting ready. It was after Christmas. He was getting ready to go back to college. And all of his friends came for the funeral and they sang and they did the liturgy. I mean, it was just, it was such a celebration of dad's life. And like, because it was all real and he got sick and then he died. And then so watching as we got older and seeing this unfold again in Danny and Claire's and their life, it just, um, it's just hard to believe that it was really happening again, you know? Totally. Um, and Dan, Dan, how did you, you know, at the time being like a young man uh, in college, like how was it, how was losing your dad for you at the time? How did it affect you at the time? Um, well, he was a, he was a uh, force of nature. You know, he was a big, big guy, physically big, but also just uh, uh, very big in other ways too. Um, he was, uh, he was the, the center of, um, anything that I mean, any room he was in, <clears throat> he was the one who was keeping things going. And that when he, uh, one of the, one of our, the people who came to the funeral, um, who knew us for most of our lives, uh, had said to me that she always considered him to be, um, the Pied Piper of the neighborhood. <clears throat> he would, he would go outside and the kids, the kids would flock from the whole neighborhood and we'd be playing games and he'd be the one kind of running things and stuff. So I, um, I mean, I just remember, uh, so I was a senior in college when he died and, um, uh, just what I remember I was a social work major and, um, uh, asking one of my professors, um, uh, you know, how, I won't have him to show, <clears throat> to show me, you know, how to, how to, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> how no, to grow up, please. you know, yeah. how to grow up out of college, you know, yeah. and, uh, and the social work professor was assuring me that I, that I had the stuff and I was able to do it. But that, I remember that being, uh, you know, it was the beginning of something new graduating, you know, and then not having him there to, um, to show me the ropes, you know, so I wanted the Pied Piper again, even though I was at that time, 22 years old, you know. Of course. Absolutely. It's such a, you know, I don't know, this is maybe just a bit of a tangent, but I just, I lost my dad in 2018. I think about him all the time at kind of a pivotal time in my life. And that, it just struck me when you said you won't have him to show you the ropes. And that choked me up when, when you felt choked up as well. Um, And I guess I'm just curious to know, and this hopefully will come more into play as we're going to talk more about, you know, specific losses in each of your lives after this, but like, the relationship after that, I think a lot about my relationship with my dad now after he passed and how he, I want him to show me sometimes the ropes and show me where I'm supposed to go and what I'm doing. And sometimes it feels so real and sometimes it feels like it's not working. Like, I'm like, but what does this mean? Like, you know, how to, and, and it, that's a hard part. That's a sticky part because sometimes when it feels like maybe they're not showing you the thing you want to see, like, are they still there? It's so, it's so complicated, but how did you, I mean, this question is for really any of you, for both of you, but like, how did your relationship continue with your dad after he passed? Well, I, I do remember, um, uh, like years later, uh, reckon, realizing that, um, that not a day has gone by that I haven't thought about him, you know? And so, like, it's kind of like it, it just happens. You're just as, you know, as, as you're, you know, going about your business 
he pops into your head, you think of something. Sometimes, most of the time, when he pop, popped into my head, it was something amusing, you know? And um, so, but it's kind of funny because you don't pay attention. I, I, in the day-to-day, I didn't really pay attention to it. But when I was, like, years later, I was talking to one of my students. I was a high school teacher. And, um, and somehow it came up, and I remember just saying to him, well, yeah, actually, wow, that was that, was that long ago. And there every single day at some point I think of them, you know. So I guess, you know, the, so the relationship uh, continued in that way. Like there was always, it was always just at the, like kind of like the tip of my tongue or just, you know, right there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I guess that was probably the case. We call that, the, in, be- we call that the internal relationship. And oh. th- there's, this, there's this space after you lose somebody that you love that you're fearful in a way that if I stop, if I don't feel the grief every day, then what will I feel? And then yep. there's kind of this bridge that happens, and all of a sudden, hopefully, this internal relationship develops. And it sounds like you really had that with your dad. Yeah. You know, yeah did you notice that as well, Ellen? Did you feel like you had an internal relationship with your dad? Uh, yeah, well, I went into the addictions field. So so my internal yeah. relationship with him started that I think I was supposed to fix him. Um, yeah, but, uh, but that didn't work. So, so there were many days that I would be at work. I worked in a rehab and when I got out of college, he, he relapsed our senior year, my senior year in college. And so I had called the, the rehab where he had been before and chatted with Mrs. Delaney, the owner, the co-founder of the rehab and said, I have a question for you. And she goes, well, why don't you come down and spend a family week here with us? And I'll answer your question. So, um, so we had a lot of fun, you know, spending that time together in treatment. But, um, but I, I thought that maybe if I just learned enough and got all, you know, the ducks in a row, then of course his eldest daughter could do what we're supposed to do, right? Zara was supposed to help our dads when they're <laughs> when they're sick. Um, so yeah, so so my profession wrapped around him too, as well as my heart. And and sometimes I feel bad, like um, being on the older end, even though we're only six years apart. You know, Mike and I, my older brother, will talk, tell dad stories and stuff, and laugh and remember. And maybe Danny and Bay don't remember all of the ones that we do. So we definitely got um, we got the good parts before the illness really kicked in as well. Yeah. Yeah, we get different versions of our parents, right, when, when you have different ages. So I know that um, as your life progressed, you both uh, were married, and that um, over the last four years, some, some really rough things have happened. So, Ellen, could you start off telling us about what happened in your life? Sure, sure. Going along um, happily ever after. And uh, my wife, Jane, was diagnosed with cancer, so, um, so she had a year of treatment, um, it was endometrial cancer. So the treatment is a hysterectomy and then uh, um, radiation and chemotherapy and then got the clear to go. You're good. Go and live your life, I think is what Dr. Jewell said. And um, and then we were having the St. Patrick's Day party to celebrate. And um, that night she's like, yeah, I think it's back. I just don't feel right. And, I, you know, that anxiety that you get if you've been sick, you think it's going to come back, you know. So sure enough, she was right. It was an aggressive form. Um and so, um, so yeah, so 29 months from diagnosis to passing, um, we lost her. She had lost her mom when she was five. So her mom was, talk about internal relationship, her mom was always with her. So um, there was probably only a moment or two when she was a little anxious 
when she realized she might not, you know, stay here with us, but knowing that she was going into the arms of her mom, she was, uh, she was okay. She really, I mean, you know, she taught us a lot. She really helped us get through um, what we needed to get through, which was a blessing. And, and then I learned that that doesn't always happen that way. So she was hospice here in the house um, with us before she passed. And then a big storm, she loved rain. And a big storm came one night and the windows were all open in the living room and wow. the angels just <laughs> took her. It was, oh my gosh. It, was um, it was amazing and, and sad. Yeah. So you said that she, that she taught you all so many things. What do you mean by that? She well, it has clear about these things. So she was just so at peace with, you know, I feel like you kept pulling people aside and giving them these. I mean, for months, probably that whole first year, I kept bumping into people, and they're like, you know what Jane told me? You know what she, you know what she told me to do? <laughs> she know what she, So so like at one point when we were here, um, I I would hear her. You know, I'd make tea and stuff, and people were coming over and. Uh, and I'm like, what do you got for me? I hear you giving all these advice. She's got six brothers. So she's the, the, the brothers, <laughs> the 20 nieces and nephews. I mean, everybody gets these little tidbits of Jane. Um, I go, what do you got for me? Even even her doctor said, hey, tap me on the shoulder. Let me know you're okay, you know? So I'm like, what do you got for me? And she, and this is a perfect example of um, like where she was at um, emotionally. She's like, I'll, you, I'll be everywhere. You know, I don't have anything specific for you, whenever you want. I mean, I'm going to be everywhere with you. And I was like, Jesus, that was a good answer. But like, not even like she had to so think good. about it or yeah. she wasn't sad about leaving us. She was sad about leaving Claire and Patty and Jack. I mean, the kids, the milestones, all the things that were coming with the nieces and nephews. She was sad of about course. that. Of course. Claire, what do you remember most about your Aunt Jane? What are some of the what are some of the things that mm. that were most significant? Yeah, my goodness. Um, I loved the the way that Aunt Jane was just seeing art in everything. You know, like she was a big fan of like walking along the beach and like picking up stones and, and shells and then assembling them into art pieces once she got home. Um, and so I actually had the the gift of living with Aunt Ellen for, for two weeks um, at the beginning of all this quarantine. And so I got to just explore a little bit of her um, art studio in the basement Aunt Jane had. Wow, that's um, very special. Oh my gosh, it was gorgeous. I was like, I didn't even realize the extent. It's just, it's so, it was beautiful. My gosh. Um, That's incredible. But yeah, we would get, um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. I want to hear you. Oh, I was just um, going to say too, like food wise, we would get these like artistic um, tins of, of cookies every year that had like layers and layers and like for, for children obviously it was super exciting that we'd get to like peel back and like just there were just more cool. and there were like chocolates you know in there and everything and she just she found beauty in everything and um, it was just yeah I've just been thinking That's about incredible. her a lot especially now but yeah I mean what I was going to say earlier is just it strikes me an aunt is a special relationship you know it really is and I think like we have these like really kind of special relationships like our parents are their own special relationships you know but like the aunt has the opportunity or uncle or you know cousin whatever but I I, there is a special thing about it a good aunt yeah that it just like 
they love you and care for you as a parent would also, but they don't have exactly the same responsibilities as parents. So you're allowed to dig a little bit deeper on the friendship level exactly. often, and that's really significant. And yeah. and they they can become a role model and, and an aspirational figure in your life in this whole other way. That's very cool. Exactly. Very I even, um, one of my favorite uh, moments with Aunt Ellen and Jane, too, would be when we were... Um, on uh, vacation at Cape Cod every summer. That was our thing for a while, um, th- you know, throughout my, my childhood. And, and Ellen and Jane would always go um, camping and they would have, you know, like a little campsite set up and we would be in, in um, a cabin that belongs to one of our family members. Um, and they would take like one or two children at a time and like give them like a little, uh, you know, ant day away from the family. And it was the most cool. special thing because we would learn like Jane would show us like how to fish and like how to, you know, start a fire. I still think about like um, our... <laughs> Our fire starting lessons. We have a little furnace here in the house, and I've been uh, instructing my housemates <laughs> based on this awesome. lesson that Jane gave us growing up. That's um, awesome. But yeah, just so cool. Such a gift. Uh, Ellen, Bobby was telling me yesterday that you had a story actually about Jane the first time you guys went camping that involved soft shell oh crabs. Will you yes. tell us that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so Jane never went camping before. I mean, her first camping experience was um, I volunteered at a camp for children of alcoholics, which we'd rent for a week. So it'd be a sleepover camp for a week at a Boy Scout or Girl Scout camp. So I brought her along. So, but she never did the tent camping cooking kind of thing. So then that fall, actually, we're like, let's go to the Berkshires and watch the leaves change and go camping. She's like, what can I do? Because I had everything, the tent and all that jazz. And so uh, I go, you could do the food, you know, because I knew she liked to cook. So I had imagined what that would be when you cook over an open fire. She had soft shell crab wild rice and Caesar salad and I was like what the heck is this clearly you've never been camping before but she had already like breaded oh you guys know your chefs but she already breaded up the soft shell crab stuff that was all in a bag and everything and the Caesar salad came out of a bag but she made her own dressing and then the whole wild rice it was actually a good idea so she had a fry pan and something to boil the rice in and put the it was amazing. It was like That's no camping so awesome. I'd ever done before. So it sounds uh, like she brought pizzazz and excitement and wonder to everything. It sounds she like did. that was totally what she does. I think you can also tell so much about people who like through how they celebrate, right? Like through someone who's like going to bring soft shell crabs and Caesar salad to a camping trip. That's that's a good kind of person. That's good, our yeah. kind of person for sure. Hundred percent. Um. And Dan, so you uh, also around the same time period, uh, and and Claire, you lost your mom, and Dan, you lost your wife, Felicia. And can you just tell us a little bit about you know that experience, like what happened? The unthinkable. It was it was also yeah. very quick, right? Very yeah. quick. Well, we were. I was. Uh, you know, some of the some of the gifts that that uh, I can focus on is that Felicia and I went to visit Claire in. France and Ellen joined us with our sister Mary Beth at the end of our trip, and um, so that was in that was in April. It was Easter, um, and in June, um, Felicia, uh, we went to a, a, a high school graduation party from one of uh, our nephews, and <clears throat> um, and she had lost a word. Um, she she couldn't reach into her brain and grab a word that she wanted. And that really upset her. 
And um, so this is just a couple months after we had this great trip to, uh, to France. Um, and it was kind of funny because uh, for me, like that happens all the time, you know, so I'm like, sure. what's the big Thank deal? You. So you couldn't, you couldn't place a word. Um, and then it happened again uh, and, she, and she couldn't place a word. And so she was really bothered by that. Um, but at another graduation party then in June, um, the middle of June, she, um, uh, she felt a uh, side of her, of her body was, was acting up. So we brought her to the, to the ER and, um, and it turned out that she had a very aggressive, um, uh, adenocarcinoma of the lung. So the, 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 um, the cancer started in her lungs. She had never smoked. Um, she came from West Virginia, which there is a lot of industrial stuff going on, but I'm not sure if that even has anything to do with it. Um, and it had already gotten into her brain, into her liver, into her bones. Um, it was all over her body. Eight weeks later, she passed away. So she... Oh, the trauma of that. Oh, my Lord. It was the... Um, and she was truly the most healthy person that I, that I know. And I'm not, that's not hyperbole. I mean, yeah. when I met her, she was, uh, she was vegetarian when we met and um, worked out all the time, you know, just constantly active, overly active, too active. You know, she was ve- yeah. very active and she wasn't happy unless she had seven things to do at one time. And um, <clears throat> very, very, uh, it just so for her, it was crazy to think, you know. But the thing about that trip to uh, to um, France <clears throat> is there were some things, some little tiny indications, retroactively, like you know, in in retrospect, where yeah. I could see some changes in her. Um, but at the time, they were just minor. You didn't you didn't notice, you know. I mean, because who could think? Who would possibly <clears throat> think that that would? be it and we all change you know what i mean we all experience weird bumps and lumps and feelings and it's just you don't think that yeah what a big hit for your family and my goodness so absolutely tell us more how what that was like that that period though eight week period of time um well it was uh um quite surreal uh and she because they she went on uh radiation to her brain and was super high doses of um, um, of steroids. Um, she, she had a um, personality change as well. Um, and frankly, Claire and I were the two biggest brunts of that personality change. And it wasn't it's not just me noticing that; other people were saying it. And, and I have a friend who's a psychologist and she said, uh, that's actually not that surprising that it would be the eldest daughter and her husband that, um, we, it, it wasn't easy for us, you know? Um, but she, uh, was so partly because, I mean, a lot of the stuff is because of what was going on in her brain, but very grandiose, big, you know, like big stuff happening in those eight weeks. And, um, uh, she was very clear that she was not afraid. You know, she made that abundantly clear. She had um, kind of uh, expressed some um, some visionary uh, moments um, with her 
her friends, people would kind of gather around her to, to kind of hear this, which was, um, which became hard on the family. We, we do have five children and similar to what I grew up with, four of our children were born in three years. The eldest was three when the fourth was born. And then the fifth came six years later. So, um, so we have very, you know, we had these five children in the house and, Talk about food. I can remember this one time where she was she was on the front porch, um, really, truly holding court with st- strangers. I mean, truly strangers who she had met during the day at some point, and and they came to to, and this was part of her part of her her illness, and we were <laughs> truly inside waiting to eat <clears throat> dinner. And we had to wait for the, the, whatever was going on on the front porch to, to finish yeah. up. It, um, so, so it was hard. So then, then also physically things got very, very difficult for her. And, um, uh, and it was, you know, like the thing is that people have said about Felicia is that she, um, nothing was ever little in her life. She was always, um, she was similar to my, my father, bigger than life, um, and so even her cancer was out of control, you know, <laughs> so, and so this is one thing that was pretty cool is that she, in her, in her manicness decided she wanted to, um, have the whole family get together for the, um, solar eclipse. So she wow. wanted to go to a farm and have her brothers and her sibling and, and my family, everybody come together for this solar eclipse that was going to be happening. And it was kind of, it was just in this kind of crazy time. Mm-hmm. And her funeral was on the day of the solar eclipse. And all wow. of us, wow. all of us were together after the funeral with those glasses on watching the solar eclipse. Oh, how powerful is that? Isn't very, that amazing? very intense. Yeah. Claire, I just, it's almost like I'm getting very choked up because, you know, I think about my relationship with my own mom and I have so much, like, empathy for you and having to go through something like that at any age, but at such a young age also, losing your mom. I mean, how did you, where did you dig deep in, in there to, like, find the, a way? And also as the oldest child in your family, I mean, that must have felt like another layer of responsibility. Like, what was what was your coping like how did you mm. how did you get through this? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's a good question. So I yeah, the one of the most difficult things for me about um losing my mom so suddenly was that especially um in that time of my life, I had just gotten back from a year of living in France and sort of longing to be home a lot of that time. Um there was a lot of uh um just newness and uh, homesickness that came with that. It was a beautiful year, but it also was very challenging in a lot of ways. Um, and and then, you know, 10 days after I got home, she was diagnosed. So I never really like got like my full mom back. You know what I mean? Like I never really got to like have a, a proper like reunion, I guess, with her. You know, she was even when I when I arrived back, I could tell she was like a little bit off. Um, you know, I, I have this picture of her um, with a, a bouquet of yellow flowers, and that was like sort of the one of the last like normal moments, and and that's the the you know the, the screensaver on my phone now. Um, but um, I she also 
when she was in college, she was a program of liberal studies major, um, which just happened to be my major in college as well, <laughs> um, cool. largely because of her. Um, but so I, I, I got back to start my junior year in this program. And our, our school year started the day after her funeral. Um, and my professors knew her um, because they had all been on the same campus. And so I got so many emails from professors saying like, take all the time you need, like we will meet with you over coffee, like whatever, whatever you need to like get through this time, however we can help you, we will. It was so generous, my goodness. Um, but then I also found that a lot of the books that I was reading, um, my mom had read before, and I was able to find copies of those books in our house with her handwriting in them. How which special was is that? the coolest thing, like to be able to, um, oh, I think I'm, she was a major note in the margins person. Any book you've, she had has that. That's cool. That's another kind of person that you know. When you meet in the, a note in the margins person, <laughs> that's similarly like a good sign to a soft shell crab at a, <laughs> at a camping trip person. It's, I feel like it's guts. It's gutsy though, right? That's people who are really, I, I feel like similarly, those two traits are like similarly people who really are obviously enjoying what they're doing right so if you're like reading a book and you're so invested in it, you're like i need to take a note in here you love reading yep. if you're a person who brings a soft shell crab to a camping trip you love cooking right yep. you're just that 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 zeal for life you know yeah well it That's sounds really... like both felicia and jane were so gutsy they were so full of life and so alive so yes. so how how has the grieving process been for you all so this happened Two years ago, right, Claire and Dan, and, and four it'll years be, ago for you, Ellen? Yeah, it'll be three three years. It was three three years for us. It was August 2017 for Felicia. Mm-hmm. For yeah. Um, so tell so, us more. Well, you know, I mentioned the um, the spaghetti. I, so I for me, the... Um, the hardest thing, like, because so Felicia so cooked... To keep us alive, but she didn't really. She didn't, you know. She didn't really. She was. The, she warmed up a lot of stuff, you know, and um, and but I was the one who would, who did all the um, the, you know, the hospitality kind of cooking and the um, the holidays were all mine and that kind of thing. And I liked that. I and I and I liked that she would do the random Tuesday after evening, you know. Um, but, um, but so, so like one of the things I saw, in, you know, preparing for this was a question about like, you know, is that difficult having to cook if your, if your partner was the one who was doing the cooking? Mm. Very right, Claire, very little. I mean, like that she, she, uh, she loved the, <laughs> the, you know, the, the, eating experience you know she loved having <laughs> us all there um and but she herself wasn't doing the cooking you know right. um but um but so i think that that recapturing the sunday dinner has been a way for me to to kind of pull bring her you know present you know um we bring out the um all the fine china and the crystal and the silver and stuff like that and um, and Felicia uh, wasn't a, a big uh, China crystal silver person, 
But what she did think was that if you have nice things, you're supposed to be using them. They're not supposed to be just stored away. So one of the things that one of the reasons I do, did that was to kind of honor her and say, well, Flish, look, I'm going to take these things out now, you know. Um, but the story that I tell, like, so anytime there's a new family over having spaghetti, it's my mother-in-law's spaghetti. But it's really my mother-in-law's spaghetti because <clears throat> I called my mother-in-law when I couldn't find the, the recipe and I told her what point I had gotten to and I was asking her, what do you do next? And she said, she said, oh, I don't do that anymore. And everything <laughs> that I was saying, every ingredient, she was like, oh, no, I don't do that anymore. So I actually <clears throat> do my mother-in-law's recipe more authentically than my mother-in-law was doing. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, That's really amazing. That's but she, that calls her to mind every Sunday too. Because every time I do that, every time I brown the, the pork – and I have her standing there saying to me, did you brown that enough? I don't think so. <laughs> so. I love that. And, and Ellen, you know, I know you had mentioned to us that um, before this, this talk that Jane was a real celebrator and that she really knew how to celebrate. And a lot of, a lot of it had to do with food. And there's so much about losing somebody these like ways we have to like let go and say goodbye but also I mean just the the enthusiasm surrounding what felt like your life was it that is a really that's a really tough thing to let go of and I'm wondering if you know if there are any special memories you want to share of the ways in which you celebrated and also I'm curious to know and maybe you haven't found an answer to this yet but like how do you scratch that itch that part of your life like how do you find the the moments of like kind of joy for yourself after after Jane's passing that's a big question <laughs> um well yes yeah food was definitely um planning and having people over that was really a big thing both of us coming from big families we just like that I mean we love each other don't get me wrong but you know having yeah. other people around was always really fun actually one of my one of my um one of my favorite things was always after some people had been over and we did one of these grand things that she would come up with um was getting together at the end of the night and like who'd you talk to you know, what'd you hear? Who'd you, you know, because we would never, there were so many people we had to kind of go around, make sure everybody was comfortable. And it was always fun to kind of gather and see what's new with everybody. But, um, but yeah, so, so Jane, like Danny's mother-in-law didn't, you know, recipes were, you know, irrelevant. When I'm a rule follower, I'm like, so I would follow her around, you know, this whole Christmas chili thing. And people say, share the recipe. I'm like, I'll give you what I got. Because I would write down, like, what are you putting in there now? You know, so part of it is like, you put some spice. Well, you guys know, you're chef. You put some yeah. spice, you know, a little of this. And then she would always say stuff like, well, you do it to taste. And I'm like, that's where I'm screwed, you know? Like, what do I know about taste, you know? Um <laughs> So, um, so, so having people over, Jane, I was, um, I had f finished my graduate work first and then, you know, for Christmas, I gave her a backpack one year. She's like, what the heck? She's a school teacher. What the heck is this? I'm like, time for you to go to grad school. So when she finished grad school, I was going to surprise her with the party, you know, and I thought that would be fun. But then I thought, you know what, knowing her, she might want to be involved in the planning. So um, I'm like, all right, we're going to have a party. What would you like? And I had some ideas in my head and she was like, oh, we'll have a crab party. 
And I was like, what the hell is that? I didn't, I, I'm so glad I asked her because I never would have thought that. She had two brothers who went to Towson University and learned about eating crabs, you know, steaming the crabs and you roll the newspaper out on the tables and you put a pitcher of beer in the middle of the thing. Oh, it's heaven. So I'm like, all right, well, we had over time three crab parties and people were like oh did I miss it last year and we were like no 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 it takes like four years to plan it and pull it (laughs) off and and um and it was interesting because it was always um the the time the the first time we did it it was the second week in June it was like I don't know June 7th or June 8th whatever that Saturday was and it was a beautiful day and the house is small so it had to be an outdoor and it's crabs you had the picnic tables we had to be outdoors and stuff and um and it was beautiful. So we got excited about doing it again because not everybody could come the first time. We did it again. Um, so the three times we did it was the second weekend in June. And then when June, when, when Jane, the second weekend in July, and then when Jane left, um, it was July 9th that she was gone. And I just felt like she was going looking for a crab party somewhere. You know, it was <laughs> raining here. I'm like, where the hell are you going? But, um, but those kinds of things, it just... Every, I think it's fair to say every time we had um, those kind of celebrations at the house, even if it was like a family dinner for a holiday or something like that, like we would do the basics and then everybody else, you just bring stuff. You know, the, um, the, the leg lamp lighting party is the chili, but then everybody would bring stuff. So I've had times over my life when people say, I love your chicken wings. And I'd be like, they're not mine. Yeah. Well, whose are they? And I like, I don't know. Somebody, because we always ask people, we had, we had a tapas party once and we're like, bring your favorite appetizer, bring your favorite tapas. Um, and so that was always, it wasn't just us um, preparing, doing the work. It was, we did a little bit and opened the door and then we enjoyed as much as everybody else did. So it was really it was always quite a gathering and people would be cleaning dishes and stuff like that. And a wine glass would break and we'd be like, yay. <laughs> so, you know, if you break a wine glass, it was a good party, you know, cause somebody's yes, helping yeah. to clean up and it, it's just that kind of stuff. So since then, um, it's kind of quiet around here, you know, and then, the, you know, um, then the pandemic kind of kicked in. So it got quieter, but, but I'm glad that if, if we're going to have a pandemic, I'm glad it came at this point instead of in the beginning. Um, and one of the things, um, watching my little brother have to lose his partner, um, was I was two years ahead and I don't know, not that great, you know, but kind of afraid because I know all these things are about to come. And there was one point, Danny, I don't know if you remember, but um, but you called one day and you were like, this is my first night alone in the house because Maeve had to sleep over or something like that. And I remember thinking like... Uh, Oh my God! It's like a year and a half in, and you even have you haven't even done the year the alone in the house thing yet. And I was like, Oh, what's going to happen? You know. So um, so like that kind of stuff. But being able to go and visit and be part of um, watching Danny kind of cope, and he's was always such a good help for me. Anyway, it's, um, the food thing is coming. I dig up a recipe. She did the Christmas cookies. Claire told you I tried to do those a little bit not as good but I'm trying to practice that this year so um so I have a question for all of you you know the the name of our show processing you know I wonder how you've other ways that you were able to process your grief you know we, we find ways maybe we discover parts of ourselves we didn't know before or things we do that we never did before 
because you know we have these feelings and they're so huge as you describe them and sometimes we find ways to help us process them so what would you say um have been dan how about for you what are some of the ways that you think you've been able to process this grief well i think the main the a big thing for me is um i have uh, been painting um and that it was a, the first experience of it was a gift from a friend um because this friend remembered that I had said years ago <clears throat> I had planned on being on an on iconography retreat, learning how to how to paint Byzantine style icons. And for, for whatever reason, I wasn't able to go to that retreat years ago. And so after Felicia died, um, a friend contacted me and said, "We're sending you to one of those retreats. So please find a retreat and go." And so that was um, in December after August, so December after Felicia died, and um, and I've been doing it ever since. So I've I've I think, and that is an amazing art form because it's uh, the, the whole point is the process. The whole point of the, I mean the 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 product can be beautiful, um, but it <clears throat> it's really is the the what goes into that. And it's every stroke is a prayer. Every stroke of the of the um, of the brush is a prayer. And you, and it. So so when you are experiencing the icon, if the icon is, you know, a thousand years old, um, you're encountering the prayer that brought that forth. Oh, um, that's so power. So it, that's an been, instru- It was an instrument of, of your yes. spirit. Yep. Yeah. Very much so. That's beautiful. What about for you, Claire? How are some of the ways that you are processing this? Yeah, that's a good question. I say I would say there are probably um, three main ways that come to mind. Um, the first um, would be uh, music. So the way that Aunt Ellen was there when when uh, my mom was passing, and she asked my mom like, "Where where can we go to find you once you're gone? Like once you're you know." Um, across the veil. Um, and, uh, my mom said, uh, doing whatever you love, I'll be there when you're doing whatever you love. Um, and so later the, that very same day, right after she passed, I, um, went to mass at Notre Dame to sing with the folk choir because that's what I love. <laughs> so, um, so it was, and wasn't it the freshman, wasn't it freshman orientation or something? Yeah, it was some yeah. random, it was a Thursday and I'm like, what are you doing to come yeah. to church? Yeah. <laughs> It was like a, a transfer orientation, and I was singing. I oh my gosh, I was singing. The, um, yeah, go sorry, ahead. what were you going to say? You, you had you had a solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah I had yeah. a solo. Wow. And this the story with the song is really fantastic too. The song, um, it's uh, "Take from My Heart" is the song that I was singing, and when I had gone to rehearse this piece, um, Mom was in hospice. I was really nervous that she was going to pass while I was gone at this rehearsal. And so I like sort of told her before I left, like, just hang on. I'll be 15 minutes. I'll be right back. I just, this is a thing that I have to do. And she was like, that's fine. Um, and she said, um, no anxiety, only peace. And I was like, all right, cryptic and weird. And then I went to this, (laughs) to this, um, this was wild. I went to this rehearsal and the song that I was singing that I didn't No anxiety, no anxiety, only peace. And the song that I was singing, take from my heart, the chorus is take from my heart, all painful anxiety, Lord, fill my heart with your peace. (gasps) And I was like, wow, (laughs) isn't that insane? And so I, I 
ran back home or like, you know, drove back home as quickly as possible and sang the song for mom while she was on her deathbed. And it like every time that it comes up, one of my friends gave me a little um, um, a little tile with the words written on it. Every time it comes up, I just am, you know, bawling. But um, so that was one way that I've been processing is through music. And and now I'm I'm a music minister and a a catechist, which is also my mom's job (laughs) um, here in Ireland. Um, and through, um, I, I mentioned this a little bit before, but through literature, she, um, you know, was a, a big reader and writer and talker. Um, and so I, um, took on a lot of that through this, um, program that I was in. Let me, let me just add to that, that Felicia was definitely in the midst of, of two worlds toward the end there. I mean, she was very much, um, and, uh, so what, so what I think what Claire was experiencing was what we all were experiencing at that point, she was really kind of neither here nor there in both places, you know? Yeah. Claire, you froze for a second when you're saying that your mom's a big reader, but so was some of the, was what you were saying, like that you processed a bit through reading as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Through um, both like the the texts that were part of the program um, and also, um, you know, texts that came up just in my personal life. But um, one of my favorite things that she would do in her um uh writing in the margins was she would sometimes like fight with the author <laughs> she would like <laughs> wow <laughs> she would like put in her own opinions and like put a lot of question marks and like oh God, really like it. engage with the text you know it was awesome and so That's that was great. a big part of like what i was most worried about when i was going back to school it's like i don't know how i'm going to you know, live in academia without my mom, because I would always, you know, call her if I was working out a paper or like those kinds of things. Um, And then seeing her example in these texts of just like, constantly asking questions. And like that, that's something that, you know, I think sort of is, is helping me to like continue. um, I don't know, not not just her legacy, but also like her role in my life was encouraging me to ask those questions, you know. Um, That's so profound. mm -hmm. That's so huge. And then the third way would be through political engagement, but that's a whole other Ah, story. (laughs) Totally. That's great. That's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, there's so many things I want to ask all of you, but I I also want to ask you, Ellen, you know, for yourself through these years since Jane has passed, what have been some ways that you have been able to express your grief, process your grief? Um, I I know from knowing you that there's a few unusual ways. Can you tell us more about that? Um. You're probably talking about the triathlon thing. <laughs> yes. Um, so when so when Jane was um, when Jane was cleared, Jane was a um, phys ed teacher and a coach and um, Hall of Famer in her undergrad, scholar athlete, all that jazz. So um, so she liked to exercise and be active. So when um, when she got her clearance that February, uh, that your cancer's good, go back to your life, live your life. Um, she said to the doctor, the nurse and I were all in the same room. She goes, I'm going to do a triathlon on Block Island. And we all, the three of us went like, what the hell is that? You know? So, um, so <laughs> she, so, um, so she said, okay. And, um, and so I'm like, all right, I'm a good cheerleader. So, so that was the plan in August of that year of, um, 2014, uh, she was going to do the triathlon. So she had something to train for and go back to, to kind of get her body back in shape. So that was great. And then it was March and it was St. Patrick's day and, um, her cancer came back. And so 
love does weird things, you know? So while we were standing there, while she was getting the very sad news that her cancer was back and she had to try some trial drugs or whatever, um, I said, don't worry, honey, I'll do that triathlon for you. We'll do it together. You can train me, you can do that. Um, I don't swim, so she thought that might be a little bit of a problem <laughs> because it's March and I only have till August. But um, but but that but that year of um, you know if she could go through what she's going through that year those six months whatever it was she was going through what she could go through I could put up with you know a little bit of discomfort and stuff. But I had so much anxiety about the swimming all the time. We were out in Greenport. Her school teacher friends gave us a weekend out in Greenport. So she's go, good, we'll practice your swimming when we're out there, you know, because the biking and, <laughs> and, the, and the run were okay. But um, but um, so, so I said, would you go with me, you know, because, you know, so she's like, all right. So she swam, you know, we swam like right to left, you know, and then um, she goes, all right, I'm going to go back and you stay out. So what I want you to do is I want you to go from here to that buoy and then to that buoy and then back. And I'm like, um, but that buoy over there is over my head. And she was like, she was like, this is going to be trouble. So, um, so, what, so, so when the day of the nor'easter came, um, I mean, when the day of this um, triathlon came, there was a nor'easter. But I woke up that day and the fear had been lifted. Like I was, it was pouring rain and but I'm like, this is what we've come to do. This is what this day is all about. I'm doing it for Jane. And maybe my magical thinking was, I get through this, man. She lives forever. Um, so anyway, we went out, and all these people are not going in the water because it's nor'easter. But, um, but I wasn't afraid. And not being afraid changed everything. Now it's just, it's just exercise. It's going to take me all day, maybe. I don't know how long it would take me. But I wasn't afraid. And I can't get over how important that was. Um, to not be afraid of what I was about to face. So now she leaves in July of the next year. That was her last summer up on Black Island. So she leaves in uh, July. And then when our anniversary comes around, I was really in the dumps. And um, and it was in February. And all of a sudden, I, I wasn't doing any, I wasn't even walking in the morning like I used to. So um, so all of a sudden I said, well, I got to get somebody to do personal training, which I'd never done before. Because I wouldn't, I'm a, I'm not a rule breaker, and I certainly certainly wouldn't miss an appointment if somebody said, you need to meet me at the Y at 6 o'clock in the morning, I would be there. And by the grace of God, the trainer that I got is a triathlon, um, two-time Iron Man, Iron Woman, Iron Man Woman, which I don't know why they just call it Iron Man, but that's another show. But, um, <laughs> Patriarchy. But uh, so, um, so we started, she, she was kind of therapy and exercise at the same time. She would say things like, we need to get your balance first, and I'm like, you don't even know, you know. Um, so, um, so I told her my story about Jane wanted me to be a triathlete. So one of the things I, when she was, you know, getting ready to leave, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do without you, you know. And she just looked at me and she goes, "You're going to be a triathlete." And I'm like, Jesus, don't give me that. Like, give me, I'll travel, I'll do these kinds of things. But, but that was part of her wisdom. I mean, I didn't drown, so now she thinks I could do this, you know. But that was part of her wisdom because the community that I found at the Y doing these triathlons and um, and how I could. I'm not so great with the words sometimes, but. But the, the emotional pain, if it was physical pain, I, you know, I've done athletic stuff in my life. I can just push through it. It's kind of, you go from here to there if you have a goal, if you have some sort of an athletic um, challenge, you know. And I'm like, if I can do that, 
then maybe I can sort out some of this other stuff. You know, a little Forrest Gumpy kind of just running forever, but I just felt like, and just not, I'm such a physical person and not having that physical contact anymore. Like, but if you're, if you're achy and you're sore, you know, from working out and um, doing that kind of stuff, that was a little bit of a connection to my body again, which I think mm-hmm. I had lost. Um, So, yeah, so it ended up being uh, a community and something to do at night. I mean, the classes were at night after work. And so I wasn't sitting here by myself. So it was a real it was a real gift. Um, And I really I really appreciate it. But that was something I never would have come up on my own. um, It's amazing. And I actually just want to jump back to something you said in there, which kind of tied it all together for me, which is that you were saying it's a little bit of magical thinking. And I think we all have this idea that magical thinking is somehow raw, but I think it's just thinking. You know what I mean? (laughs) I think it's just thinking because I don't think that we know. And Claire just kind of is like what you were saying before about the song appearing that you had, you know, the advice your mom had given you. Like I think, and this is everyone's uh, can think what they want, but I've noticed so much lately in my own life. And the more, I channel it and the more I look for it, the more it appears that magic happens all the time. There's all this stuff that we can't explain, especially spirit in grief. Right. But especially in in grief and in letting go, you know what I mean? The things that seem like magical thinking, like, do these two things have a connection? Like, maybe, but like it's helping, you know what I mean? Like these are those unseen, unspoken things that we think. Because it's our thinking. connection to the to the other side. It's our connection. Right. And right. magic and spirit is what connects us to the people that yeah. have passed to and another I, realm. I understand when sometimes, you know, therapists or stuff will talk about like, well, you're having magical thinking and maybe it can, you know, not be. Per- but I think that like <laughs> it's a good thing. The thing. I think that sometimes we all really need it, too. Yeah. And I think sometimes it actually ends up helping us in our real life. And it ends up I think that one of kind of how we started this conversation when you lose someone one of those things that you like need right because that person isn't physically there anymore the experiences you had aren't there is to is to be able to find how we keep that relationship continue the bond right right and a lot of that is magic and a lot of that is believing this stuff we can't see and whether it's spiritual or religion or just like thinking in some kind of cosmic sense like it can be so profound and so important in nurturing that relationship that because you you won't get it back exactly how it used to be they'll never be there again you won't get the thing that you really wish you had the most but like you can go there you can go there in your spirit and to believe that there's still there's still a relationship there. so we could have the theme song we believe in magic right because we all agree with that right we believe <laughs> totally. in magic you know what i think so, is the theme of this driscoll family is about not being afraid and doing what you love i thought that was so powerful oh. your mother's message i will never forget that me neither it actually just completely i almost completely broke down <laughs> pause the episode she said how, um, you said how will you know, how will i know you're there and she said when you're doing what you love yeah that's Oof. extremely beautiful and very touching. And so at the end of each episode, we ask all our guests and you guys can each, you know, tell us individually what it, what this is. But we ask all our guests if there was some less something you could have told your younger self at the beginning of this journey with grief, you know, what whatever, wherever that point is for you, whether it's at the diagnosis or the loss or wherever you find yourself at your start, um, knowing what you know now, having gone through a lot of this processing what would that advice be to your to your younger self? And Ellen, we can can we start with you? 
okay, because I'm the oldest. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I think um, I, I don't. I don't know if I would give myself any advice for um, Jane's illness because I think that uh, I think that that went as we had hoped it would go. You know how we supported each other, and um, but I think if there was any advice I'd give myself is that uh, after she left, um, that I'd not be such a tough guy that I could tell people when I'm having a bad day. And um, Danny, after Felicia left, he said something to me one day. He goes, um, it's it's hard losing a partner who's a celebrity because um, because everybody has a story of their loss, you know, and um, and Jane's a bit of celebrity around Huntington here, too, and, and all of our friends and family. So so I find myself, it's natural, I, I don't think I was doing it on purpose, but um, somebody else would be hurting or tell a story or whatever, and I would help them, you know, kind of comfort them. And, and, and I liked hearing those stories, and I liked being able to help out. But um, but then it's like a knee-jerk reaction when people say, um, how you doing? I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, how are you? You know, good. Um, so I think if there was anything that I would have done differently... Um, you know, maybe I would have told somebody if I was having a bad day. You know, I'm getting better at that. Not great, believe me, but um, <laughs> but I think that's tough, I, yeah. I think that would have been my advice to myself. It's beautiful and so and really important. What about you, Claire? What would what do you think? Yeah, I probably would say something similar actually about um, like not being ashamed of the grief. You know, like I I found like um, my earliest experiences of. Um, grieving were being surprised at how much other people understood you know like I um I, I mentioned before that I had gotten emails like the day after my mom's funerals from my from my professors who I hadn't necessarily met yet <laughs> who were saying like don't worry about it we'll figure it out just like do what you need to do um and I I think I I hesitated in asking for help a lot at the beginning because I was sort of like I thought I don't know that I should have just been able to like grin and bear it and like, you know, muscle through or whatever. But like the, um, the, um, realization that everyone understands grief to some extent, you know, everyone has some, um, experience in their life that they can relate to, even if it's not exactly the same as, you know, losing a parent. Um, but everyone has some understanding of, um, trauma and grief that they can, rely upon to empathize with you and you know asking for help is is a good thing <laughs> it really is good really we is. have another theme song help i need someone <laughs> exactly <laughs> what, what about you dan what is do you what would your advice to your younger self be um i think uh um to be uh uh merciful of myself um there's a lot of you know there's a lot of uh uh ptsd really you know about this and uh and a lot of responsibility off the bat of um even though my children our children were uh grown and there but there's so much responsibility and uh and i run a school and there's i i the board of directors told me not to come in so I didn't go for the first semester um but I think just to to I would just say I was not merciful enough uh to myself and um 
And I, I do remember, it probably was Ellen, somebody saying to me, you know, like, it's, um, it takes so much longer than you think it's supposed to have taken, you know, and that I could be still like in a fog um, it, at Christmas after she died in, in, in August, um, that that is, that that's okay, you know, because I, I really like, for me, it was supposed to be, well, all right, pick it up and get, and get moving. And then kicking myself for not doing it well, you know, for not picking up and getting moving well, you know? Um, so I think that would be the thing for me. And, and it seems to me that was like a theme for me that first year was mercy, just, um, just being merciful to myself and to others and, and asking for, you know, Felicia's mercy, you know, and for her, uh, reach for her to reach out in love and kindness and, and mercy, you know? Yeah. So beautiful. So beautiful. Driscoll's, I want to thank you guys <laughs> so much. And I, I want you to know that I often think after we finish episodes, oh my God, that was so amazing. But I will just say, and don't tell anybody, <laughs> but this was my favorite episode. <laughs> <laughs> it really, it really touched. It was so touching. And, um, I, like we kind of started off saying by the saying this, but like just seeing with, with only having really known you guys for an hour of time, it's so evident and just your demeanor and the way you speak and the way you're like, have, you know, emo- are emotional for each other's losses, like that your family is so important and so sweet and tight. And I'm really happy for you guys that you have that. I think that's really beautiful. And I'd love if we could talk more at another time about, you know, family and how that, how that has been, you know, part of your journey but I think that I had wanted to talk more about it but I think it actually goes without saying by just hearing how you guys have talked about each other and to each other it's very obvious that's right you guys are really it just is and your families extend to your other four children and to your other four yeah. siblings and and yeah. may you yeah. may you all have um peace and continue to do what you love you know yeah. Thank and, you. and be Thanks. who you are amazing totally. beautiful people and also just, I know that this is emotional. I know that it's like, I mean, I've got super emotional. I can't imagine how like sitting here and talking about this stuff with strangers just, or at all, just brings up so much. So just a very deep, deep gratitude for like, you know, for doing that and like taking that those steps today to like bring up your own grief and, and your own vulnerabilities. And I know that this helps people so much because, you know, Claire, you're saying everyone has an experience with grief in some way. And so many people just don't quite know how to tap into it and don't know that their feelings are shared by so many. And it can literally save somebody's life to know that they're not alone in this pain. So like what a generous gift you all gave in in tapping into that. And just thank you so much for doing that. So kind and so, so generous in this time of year when we're told to be generous how much more generous can you be than with your spirit and your story so thank you thank you yeah we're gonna end the episode but um thank you and have a wonderful thank wonderful you week. thank yeah. you, you too. so much for Thanks this for opportunity us. you guys thank you yep. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. 
The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.